Welcome to the Everyday Citizens Tactical Podcast, Episode 8, Conventional Forces and Civilian Takeaways. As always, my name is Jeremy and I will be your host. In this episode, I am joined by the Nickest of Nicks, who is a Marine Corps infantryman gone Army. Here, we're going to discuss a wide range of topics over conventional military forces, as well as some of the things civilians can take away to make more efficient prepper and community-based groups. For those that have not heard yet, as of the posting of this video, which is August 15th, we have been deleted off Instagram and Facebook once again. There was no warning prior to this happening, nor reason provided afterwards. But you can expect us to have our social media recreated and back up by the end of this week. With that out of the way, let's get started. Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder yeah. Call me what you wanna but you can't call me no coward yeah. Strength in numbers, we the people still the ones with power Fighting fire with fire, time to take back what is ours Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder All right, Nick, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you want to go ahead and uh, give everybody a little bit of a introduction to yourself. You know, you're, you're, you're a rather large account, but, you know, if anybody that may not have uh, seen your account before. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm that large, but. Um, uh, you're five digits. That's getting up there. <laughs> um, let me see. I, I was in the Marines for 10 years. Um 2007 2017 I was no 311 um, I let me see did four deployments there and then as soon as I got out of the Marines I immediately went to an army recruiter and started the process of going to the army so in doing that um, did all the paperwork had to go through set, uh, maps all over again do all that and two weeks no i'm sorry one week after my contract with the marine corps officially ended i went back to maps shipped off to fort benning to do my uh cat scout training and been in the army ever since nice so let's see that probably puts you uh, probably close to almost 15 years now at this point then yeah i just hit 15 years in june nice awesome well, I know we're definitely going to focus on a lot more of like the uh, conventional side of topics tonight, which I think a lot of people have questions about, specifically those that have never served. Uh, but even those that have been in the military, people that weren't ground side and then even on the ground side specifically in your more infantry style fields, you know, don't understand a lot of the kind of big picture stuff that goes into that. So we're going to dive into some of those topics tonight. Um, I guess we can kind of start with, um, you know, what are some big takeaways from conventional forces that both veterans that are out now and civilians who have never served should kind of uh, take note of? Um, how much planning that really goes into an operation, mm-hmm. whether it be something as simple as, you know, like a squad ambush to a company size raid. Um, there is a lot of planning and replanning, rethinking and, you know, um, uh, possibilities that you think of that change things on the fly, um, that go into it just to make like, um, just that one mission go as smooth as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people kind of get, um, 
not necessarily narrow-minded, but they, they kind of put the walls up, the blinders up, because they only think of their their small group or they think of, like, that guerrilla force, that, that group of five guys when, you know, the, planning anything for five guys, even a, just a basic training event, is so much easier, um, so much more simple than, you know, doing even, like, a platoon size um, training event. Yeah, um, training is a great example of understanding how much planning and logistics that goes into it. So like right now I am an instructor and being, you know, for me, I show up, I already know what class I'm going to teach and I do it and then I essentially go home. But, um, and with, with that, I also see like what goes into all that because it's, you know, whatever class that I'm going to teach, that class was planned maybe three months, four months before it even happened. Mm-hmm. And it can be anything from like a live fire range where we're teaching these guys, okay, this is how you use a mission, uh, a 50 cal and a 240. All that planning just to get that one range day took months ahead of time just to get to that day. So, you know, something that we do quite frequently, it still takes months to prepare for that one time that we're going to do it. And that's something that, you know, even in training, like people can take away is like, you know, it's, there's a lot that goes into it. And one of the big benefits of being that conventional force is that you have years and years worth of doctrine and standardized templates to help you plan training. Whereas, you know, those on the civilian side, um, or even if you think like small scale, like first responder size, um, in like your suburban and uh, rural areas, there's not necessarily that history of documentation and, you know, uh, information that's already put forth for you to continue to reference as you plan things over and over and over again. Mm. Cause I know like for us, for my local crew, we're going to, um, a force on force facility later this month. And I started planning that training back at the end of May. Um, Because there's so much logistics that goes into it, but then you also have to think about, you know, what are we actually training on? What are these subcategories of, you know, those big, big picture categories are we going to train on? So it's, yeah, it's definitely a lot. Right. Another factor I would say is like, um, so you're, you're firefighter or police? Yeah, I'm a fireman. Right. So um, your, your department, your city or county, they have their own ways of, going through the chain to get like, Hey, we want to do this training. Okay. You know, you have your set way of doing it. And then the army has its set way, you know, Mm -hmm. and like the army side is pretty, uh, it's a pretty long chain of like stuff. People you got to go through just to get like, you know, Hey, I need a hundred rounds for this one day, you know, whereas, you know, civilian side, it could be better or it can even be worse, you know, like, um, Cause I, I don't, I don't have a background in, you know, the civilian side of that, but I can only imagine like, you know, your department is set on a budget and then they want to go train, but yet, you know, is it going to take them over budget? And if it does, like, what's the process to even request to go above budget and get more funding for that? Mm-hmm. It's, it's very similar to how I remember things in the Marine Corps. You know, there's the planning stage, there's the ask permission stage, there's the logistics stage, you know so on and so forth. I mean, even just as much as, you know, using an abandoned building in our district to perform some sort of training that would benefit us is 
is weeks if not months worth of planning for asking such and such department if we can do this and then planning the training and then scheduling the training and all that so definitely um smaller scale but it, it was kind of it's kind of easy for me to pick up on just coming from you know big military um, and seeing how things were done with that um, you kind of started to talk about that you know kind of all of the steps in the in the large scale picture that goes into that even with something like the army so do you kind of want to hit on you know how that kind of works what's the command structure what's the unit structure kind of look like um, for your your general area um, that you're in on a normal basis without giving away any opsec related details okay um so when when i was in my last unit that i just came from so i was a squad leader and essentially i would have to do what we call a con op concept operations you know and make a powerpoint it's like this is the training i want to do you know and i gotta have like you know make sure i gotta make it one i gotta make it look pretty too because mm -hmm. there's like a format they want you to follow too but it's like you know the five w's you know the um like what's the goal like all that kind of stuff right mm -hmm. um probably the best way to think of it is like just it's kind of like a workout you know you you know what you want to do but if you really want to make it good you got to like really plan it out methodically and focus on what you're trying to train for that day or that week right mm -hmm. so it's kind of like that and then I had to present it to my platoon sergeant, my platoon commander. They look over it, tell me what to fix, redo it. Once it's good enough for them, it just goes up to you know company commander XO, um, and then it goes up again. And then once it's you know um, gone all the way up to basically the squadron commander, you know to prove it. Now it's like okay, let's get these dates, let's get these ranges, stuff like that. Kind of mm -hmm. make, have okay, we need this range on this day we need x amount of ammo if we're going to shoot ammo we're going to need this equipment or whatever stuff like that so it's um it's, it's it can be a process mm -hmm. and there's definitely probably pros and cons to having such a long process and a set there basically there is, chain there is i mean it prevents you know in the good to me in the good side it, it makes it makes sure that like you know the people who are supposed to like know that hey they're this is coming to this request form is going to be sent to you know is coming towards you mm -hmm. okay well the executive officer is going to be cc'd in an email and it's going to go to whatever uh civilians you know um that actually get the request form for the ammo it's like okay cool so the civilians have it and the xo has it and it's supposed to be like, hey, this XO should have that. So that way he knows, like, hey, he can go and check up on and see what's going on. Because, you know, the executive side, executive officer side of stuff is, you know, they're the ones basically doing all the admin stuff and logistics stuff as well. Mm -hmm. or, so, and that's, that's something, I guess. Um, Big picture wise, too, think, with something like that. You know, if, if your company, say your alpha company, and you do a training, and that training comes to a conclusion, you know, the good word spreads at the squad leader level, the platoon uh, leader level, or even like the company leadership level, you know, alpha company, you know, is bragging about how well the training went. Now Bravo company is like, hey, this was really good training. Let's, let's plan something similar or exact same to ours and put this into our training rotation and so on and so forth. So then you're constantly sharing good training amongst your forces. Mm-hmm. 
And with that is, um, even if it's just in training, we're going through the same process to get the logistics that we need. So, uh, so for us as cast scouts, our big thing is vehicles. So I had to work in Humvees a lot and, you know, we all, everyone already knows like, okay, Mondays we go to the motor pool, work on vehicles. If we're going to go out to the field, we already know, okay, Monday we go work on vehicles, dispatch them, make sure they're good to go. And if we're going to leave on a Wednesday. Okay. Is when are we going to get fuel? That's going to be, that's one of our biggest questions. You know, and it's like we know as we need to do it, but it's when when are we when's our when's our timeline? Yeah, and, and, and I think that's definitely a big takeaway that people can make note of from the conventional side is that even in your training, it should still look similar to the process of an operation in a sense. Yes. You know, what does your prep work look like? What does your staging work look like? What is you know getting to that training look like? Like if you're you know, if you're a civilian group and you're doing, you know, a, a patrolling exercise with a squad size element, did you guys, you know, meet up at the location and then, you know, kind of bullshit in the parking lot for a couple of minutes and then just randomly start walking? Or did you show up in your vehicles, you know, properly take up 360, stage outside the vehicles and then, you know, establish uh, your route and then, you know, go on and so forth. So there's definitely big takeaways with that on the conventional side. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you kind of started to talk about the prep work with that and, you know, the planning stages. So, you know, what are some of the big benefits in your eyes uh, of notes as far as kind of capabilities and the resources and logistics of a conventional force that people should, you know, kind of take note of and study on? Um, okay, so a good example would be the, um, the post I made about not everyone's going to be a trigger puller. Mm-hmm. Did you that see that? Good post. I did. That was a good one. Yeah. So they like if if someone were to actually look at okay the Marine Corps right. Mm-hmm. So how you know the answer to this was like how many what's the percent of Marines are actually infantry? I think it's if, if I remember correctly it's less than five percent. Okay, so it's gone down since I've been in. I think I, it was. I think at one point it was like, close to ten percent. Yeah, it was ten percent when I was in. And then it, there was a bit of a drawdown. Yeah. Probably right around, actually, when you got out, like 2017. And then when we got the new Commandant in 2020, I think it was 2020, 2020 or 2019, he kind of like re envisioned the infantry in a sense or, or what his yeah. idea was. And they kind of started to build that back up. Yeah. So I came from a 10% era. And that's why I said it might have changed. But like it's, you know, about five. We'll say five just for number's sake. Mm-hmm. So. of the entire Marine Corps is infantry. That means 95% is all support for infantry. Mm -hmm. And that's whether it's, you know, logistics, motor T, um, the air, air wing, bulk fuel, artillery. Um, it's all support, you know? So for, so for reference for everybody that's listening, there is a hundred, and 78,500 active duty Marines as of the 2022 fiscal year. So if we did 5% of that, that means there's just shy of 9,000 infantry Marines for the entire United States Marine Corps. Yep. That's nothing. That's, that's literally absolutely nothing. Now I think people, I think people get misled um, as far as, 
history goes and the study of you know different wars and battles and whatnot because even throughout history a large scale of conflict uh, specifically we'll, we can look at like world war one to now uh, a large amount of conflict is not necessarily always revolved around infantrymen in some conflicts you know infantry was extremely big vietnam world war ii but in a lot of other conflicts especially in like the middle east a lot of your other ground side units you start to see in more combat style roles whether that's just taking um taking contact from different logistics uh from different logistics uh convoys in hot zones right or you um, know their eod whatever it may be yeah um a really good uh probably spicy one would be uh jessica lynch mm. um you know like her convoy her unit she was a um she was a logistics clerk so she was in a uh i think she was in a bsb uh we call it so it was a brigade support battalion so it's a giant logistics battalion for her brigade mm-hmm. and they're you know going through nazaria and at her point in the convoy they get hit and separated or yeah they got separated first and then they get hit so that's also something that like you know you may you may be wanting to help your community because like well i'm a i'm a doctor or you know i can do this um uh whatever skill you know that's enabling but you're still at risk you know you're not completely safe for sure and and, you know infantry if you look at the conventional side the true purpose of an infantry marine soldier whatever it may be or the equivalence of such is direct action all the time pretty much no other question except in some conflicts where they hold someone of us like a security style role like your infantrymen aren't doing all of these other support style tasks if the conflict is heavy yeah towards the end of the, the war in the middle east probably like post 2014 you see things start to draw down and you don't necessarily see the the nitty-gritty side of um, the infantry but that is that is their sole job is is you know taking souls whereas everybody else they have purposes they have um, different jobs they just happen to get roped into the conflict doing those specific tasks right um, like, you know, for, you know, but for the listeners who weren't in the military that do know, um, you know, all of your gunners on, you know, your security Humvees during like logistics, uh, convoys or, you know, different types of security patrols for fobs and all that. Those aren't, you know, dedicated machine gunners, you know, sitting on the two forties and 50 cows. Those are your S three guys or an S six guy or whatever that went to a course prior to that deployment or prior to that large field op and got training on that and now serves secondarily in that role. Um, they're not, a, you know, they're not a dedicated machine gunner. They're not an infantryman. Yep. Oh, sorry. I went on a bit of a tangent there. Um, but yeah, so I guess let's talk about logistics a little bit. Um, you know, big picture military, if it wasn't for logistics as much as, is you know, people hate to say it bullets don't fly without supply that that is a very true statement it is but it's just it's so corny at the same time <laughs> yeah. well because it, it's always said by like the you know the corniest looking dude mm-hmm. you know and it's like dude you never probably even shot a you know your weapon before you know and you're saying that but, <laughs> but um, 
But yeah, so logistics. Um, what are you know what are some key points of consideration just as far as um, setting up for a large scale operation? Say you're conducting um, an area assault uh, at like a platoon size level. What are some big logistical you know factors that people should make note of, should consider um, civilian side or military side? Um, time. Time is a big one. I would say time. Um, not just time as in like, uh, what time are we going to execute this or what time uh, are they going to be here? But like, how long is this going to take to get to us? If, if, um, so like, you know, the Marines, we have a company gunny, right? Um, yeah, so the company gunny is the one that does all the logistics stuff for us normally, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the army, it's the first sergeant that does all that. We don't have a gunny. Interesting. So, but you have that guy that, you know, their job is to go get your stuff for you, right? Mm-hmm. And, okay, if they're going to go get it for, say, resupply of ammo, uh, food, water, chow, fuel, they got to go to X grid and get it and then come back. How long is that going to take? Because that means at any point in time, you are now potentially going to fight with whatever logistics you have at that time mm-hmm. while you're waiting for the resupply to come to you. I think that's a big factor that a lot of people forget about, even the military side guys. Um, cause in this modern day of age, specifically like the, um, you know, big picture forces, you know, the battalion size elements and bigger is we kind of are spoiled by logistics in the past 20 years of warfare. Mm-hmm. Where that wasn't always the same in previous conflicts, you know, before we spent this long in the sandbox. Mm-hmm. Cause we had the luxury of just dominating, you know, specifically the sky, but even like roadways throughout the entire conflict. Right. Um, except for a few, you know, mountain passes in Afghanistan and whatnot. I mean, we pretty much dominated logistics where, you know, as in other times, you know, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, um, all these other places, logistics is, is not so easy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people um, consider that a bunch, even my military side guys. I feel like they forget about that a lot. Yeah, um, I forgot I was going to go with that. I'm sorry. No, you're good. I think about it from like, I, I think about it heavily from the ammo perspective a lot of times. When I, even, even when I was in the military and we're talking about ammo loadouts, people think of what ammo they need for the, you know, actual conflict to come, the direct, the, the whole point of, an operation, um, whether it's defensive or offensive, but they don't think of what do I need after that before I get more of my primary loadout. Right. People are like, oh, I've got my seven mags plus five in my pack. That's good for the operation. Okay, what happens when you use all of your operation ammo and you have 12 hours till, you know, somebody brings you ammo? Mm-hmm. Or, go ahead. or like... um you're a homesteader and you're fighting off people coming trying to take over you may have a full loadout 
and you expend five mags, okay? Well, how long is it going to take you to replace those five mags? Not from your own stockpile mm-hmm. that you have saved up, like, because you're going to have to pull from that stockpile. For sure. So, like, how long is it going to take you to replace those five mags to go back into reserve, essentially? And I feel like that's a really hard aspect to think about. It um, is, but it's... I think I think it was um, Op 4 that was talking about it on his story, maybe. if, if uh, He was talking about just how general picture conflict isn't going to be what everybody thinks it might be here in the U.S. Like you're, It might have been him, it might have been you. I don't remember. Somebody was talking about how you can't rely on your homestead to be you know, this, this giant fortress um, that you're going to hold out the entire conflict or end of the world or whatever on. Um, and I thought that was a really good point. However, it's really hard to like plan for that type of event. You know, as a, as a civilian right now, you and your squad size element of dudes plus their families, we have pretty much no way of acquiring more ammunition. Even if you have a reloading station, once you run out of powder and primers and all that kind of stuff, you're out. You know, you don't have that type of infrastructure to provide for you. You know, if you're if you have a lar- really large garden and something goes wrong during harvest season in your garden, or you know whatever happens, where are you getting more supplies of that? Because again, you don't have the infrastructure for that. Yep. Um, that was something I I mentioned that before a while ago, and you know the point I was trying to make was like because I was getting at guys who think that you know oh I got my team of guys and we're going to go out and, and, you know, do small ambushes or stuff like that. And we're going to, you know, battlefield pickup and resupply that way. Like, well, that in theory or in fantasy sounds great, but in reality, that, that that's not going to get you far. Yeah, that's you know, a, and and it's, it's a hard task in general. Yeah, and it's like if you, have, if you have, don't have a way to keep to actually sustain yourself continuously, then your mindset and focus probably needs to shift because i know because like one of the things is like uh i think what a lot of us trying to do is like we're trying to eliminate the fantasy of people thinking they're gonna go out and just boogaloo yeah i think that's one of the things and that's why we talk about you know the logistics so much it's like you know we're trying to pull people back away from the boogaloo mentality and it's like it's not going to be you know as cool as you think it's going to be, it's going to suck. Mm-hmm. So yeah, people, people find out real quick how much that stuff sucks just by doing actual training. Mm-hmm. Like if you have either a, a veteran in your group that's motivated or B a civilian who's done quite an extensive lengthy amount of research and they do actual trainings that involve, you know, large scale movements and realistic kit loadouts and all that kind of stuff. You start to realize like, just getting to and from you know a staging area for some sort of uh operation is is a lot of work within itself Mm -hmm. Um, you're not going to be so excited to you know conduct that ambush when you had to track six miles through the hollers because you can't use the main roads because you're not the dominant force in the area Yep. and now you're trying to set up an ambush and hope you were too late because people got tired and you had to wait now you missed your window of opportunity so now you're sitting at that point to wait for them to come back again tomorrow and there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. And that's, that's also why I touch on like deliberate plannings too. 
uh, in my posts because that's something like um, like my like Reaper he talks about you know uh, like you know his niche you know is on the sniper and uh, like a lot of field craft stuff you know like mm-hmm. all that good stuff but the thing is like we trying to get people out of like the whole mindset like well I'm just gonna go in this building and I'm just gonna snipe dudes from this far away like well it doesn't work like that that's not, that's not how it works at all it's like you like a sniper just doesn't go to a random spot and just hope he gets something you know it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of deliberate planning he actually knows he can actually uh he can smartly predict where his enemy is going to be because he knows his enemy which goes into you know understanding things like their doctrine um so if there's like a uh an invading force like you need to understand their doctrine because that doctrine is going to tell you what they're going to do essentially you know um so like uh, the Ukraine conflict is a big one. Um, when it first started off, I was in my old unit and we we were all talking about it, watching the news and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing I noticed was like that's a lot of Burdams and BMPs destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like okay, well, I know Burdam and BMPs are used for reconnaissance, especially Burdam. And it's like that tells me they're not using the reconnaissance assets right. Mm-hmm. They're getting destroyed, and the proof is in like, oh, all these tanks are getting hit. Well, yeah, if your bird, essentially your reconnaissance elements are just going into the city with the mindset, let's just see what we find, getting lit up. Now your tanks are coming in blind, and they're getting lit up. What do you think was going to happen? And I think so, that brings on two important aspects that everybody forgets, regardless of whatever side. Uh, of a conflict you find yourself on, whether you're civilian, military, whatever it is, it brings up two important points is that one, over the past 20 years of conflict um, in the Middle East, we have this perception of what warfare is supposed to look like, um, when in reality we have not fought a true conventional force, specifically one that's heavily um, supplied by outside forces like Ukraine is right now. Like if, if Ukraine hasn't been getting weapons for the past six months, that this war would not even still be existing. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically on, you know, like the shoulder-fired rocket side um, and all that kind of stuff, like those those elements added to the small units, that has absolutely changed the front. They're still getting their butts kicked, in my opinion, um, but they're holding off better through those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next time the U.S. fights in a conventional war, everybody's in for a really rude awakening. Yes. Um, the second part of that is I think we can look at the conflict in the Middle East to reference this is that if you're, um, let's say you're an infantry company and you get on deck in your um, AO area, this is where you're spending the next you know eight months of your deployments. Um, a lot of times, specifically um, in the beginning, people got their butts kicked a lot for the first portion of their deployment because it's so much different than your training and you have to get to know your area because you're going to a place you've absolutely never been before. Um, you've never actually fought an insurgency force. Um, I remember a lot of stories from, you know, the early Iraq and Afghanistan vets talking about how 
you know, like the first four months or so you're on deck that you'd be lost in the sauce. Um, and then you pick it up and everything, you start to make notes of everything, you know, you're starting to operate a lot smoother. And then the next crew gets on deck and they screw it up and then they start to pick things up. And it's kind of a constant you know, battle of that. Yep. That was, that was something we had to learn how to work through too. So, uh, when we, when we were getting ready for Afghanistan, we were, we were always taught and trained to like, okay, when you do your rip, you know, when you're doing your left seat, right seat with the, real, the people you're relieving, that's probably when you're going to get hit or not hit because they're going to be watching you regardless. So they're going to hit you to see how you react or they're not going to hit you because they're going to watch and see if you know what to do because they're going to know uh, that these are new people. Yeah. yeah that- once they actually like study you, then they know how to hit you and that's when you get messed up. And that is kind of like a different element. I guess we could kind of hit on that's that's less conventional, but kind of fits into this subject um, is that you should always specifically as a smaller force, you should always try to deceive the enemy on your true numbers or capabilities, Um, whether that's changing your uniforms, uh, changing your patrol formations, um, you know, whatever that may be. I know uh, what we used to do on the embassy security side when we would do uh, augmentations to embassies we would change our camis every couple of days or different fire teams would wear different camis or we'd wear civilian attire while the other teams wore camis um you know today we'd go out in a security patrol of four and then the next day we'd go out in two and then we'd send two teams out we'd have eight guys um and they're all in desert camis but then a couple hours later someone would come out in woodland camis so you really want to try to throw off your observers and other, you know, intelligence units that may be observing your forces, even if you're the smaller force. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of hard to do on the on the conventional side because you're so big picture. Um, but if you're the smaller force, it is definitely in your best interest. You can't really deceive a company, like company size element of like, you know, soldiers or Marines because like it's very evident of what is there and what's going on right but if you're a squad size guerrilla force or you know you're a platoon size guerrilla force you know it's possible to do that right um which i guess as we talk about numbers we can kind of talk about recruitment and retention um i kind of want to just hear your opinion um and i guess if you're if you're willing to talk about it, of just how the recruitment and retention is going in the military right now because I've been out for a few years now so I'm not as as in touch as I was before well recruitment really just going to be like any other kind of recruitment at the end of the day it's going to be about what's in it for them mm. I mean that's really the big thing um, if you know if they're young and they just want to like see action and you know, experience cool stuff that can be something you can use. So like, okay, you know, maybe this isn't what we're looking for or like, okay, we can, he's eager. They're eager. Maybe we can bring them in and train them up and then kind of like mature them a little bit, you know, before we send them out kind of things. But it's, it's really going to come down to what's in it for them. Um, how, how do you feel? 
on the not necessarily the retention side but the recruitment side is i've read i think most of us have read that both like the marine corps and the army are struggling right now as far as recruiting quotas go yeah uh it's definitely in the army so um i can't give my opinions too much on that yeah because you're still active yeah but it's i i can say this though is the guys that are that have gotten out that were my soldiers what they told me is that it's because they see nothing out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no deployments going on. There's no war going on. They just feel like they're wasting their time and they don't even know why they joined in the first place. And, so, that's, and that's an unfortunate reality for a lot of younger guys, specifically probably since like 2015 when the Iraq and Afghanistan deployments really started to drop off. Yeah. Is, but it's, it's not necessarily bad. I mean, no, it's it's not necessarily bad to, to have a meaningful military career. You don't have to be a door kicker your whole life. No, and I told this to guys when I was in the Marines still before I got out was that even though there's nothing going on, that's your time to invest in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the Marine Corps, guys didn't see it so much because the way units send guys to schools, and you know that, and I know, dudes trying to go to school is like you know one of the hardest things because there's so always limited spots Mm -hmm. and it's pretty much a competition of like who's going to go whereas in the army um, you know you want to go to school you just tell your squad leader and they do the uh, paperwork to get you in make sure if it's something that you need to be physically fit make sure you're fit and you go See, that's, that's what's always confused me is how there's that big of a difference between the Marine Corps and the Army as far as training possibilities for individuals. And it almost seems like some, when I was in the Marine Corps, it almost seems like some leadership would kind of like, not necessarily frown on you wanting to go to training, but they just, they didn't see it as like, I'm trying to better this individual. They see it 100% as, of, does him going to do this better my position um, and my perspective of the company. And I always think that was a really wrong perspective to have. Yeah, I I didn't see it that way, kind of. It was. It felt like more of, um, like, if you wanted to go somewhere, you're inconveniencing them because now they got to do paperwork to get you there. That was another big one, which it, it really, frustrated me. It really felt like it was, like, you're inconveniencing them. Mm-hmm. So, and then... You know, we can go on probably for hours talking about like the cur- like the messed up side of the Marine Corps too, of like favorites and mm-hmm. the politics and stuff like that. But I mean, um, but yeah, I mean that that's a factor too. And in the Army, I I had one. I only had I've only experienced one platoon sergeant trying to keep me away from school. And my buddy that was the other squad leader told me about it, so I messaged him it's like hey i want to go to school and um thankfully my pl uh was in that group chat and she got me in nice so yeah that was like that's been my experience like if you want to go to school you're, you can go like mm-hmm. you can do any, like you can really do anything you want in the army until they tell you no yeah which is pretty cool uh, I mean, unless it's like airborne. 
So that's a hard one sometimes. But so kind of transitioning from the conventional side, uh, let's start talking about the the modern civilian. Um, and it doesn't have to be as far as you know, here comes the war type. Yeah. Type, but just just general knowledge, training, all that kind of stuff. You know, how do you feel about the current shift and direction that the average, we'll even use the word tactical civilian is kind of heading? I think it's going in the right direction. There's obviously, there's always going to be stuff we need to work on to fix, Mm -hmm. to better it. But, um, the real, the realization of, you know, basic infantry like skills to be applied is really uh, refreshing, I think. It seems like even if you go back to 2020, like right before COVID started, even right after, there was not this same, I would call it, movement or, or idea of, you know, the infantryman in a civilian. Like, I think like if I look back, like everything was, you know, dry fire videos, uh, split times, you know, slickster rigs, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I really don't know when when or where it became. But, I mean, for me, for me, it was um, a little after the Mountain Recce video from Grand Thumb. Mm-hmm. And everybody was all about Recce this, Recce that. And I just got annoyed with it because it was like, that's not reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. Reconnaissance is not a rifle, it's not a piece of gear. And I just kind of, I guess, retaliated. And then my, I just somehow accidentally, you know, my stuff just started getting shared. Yeah. And, and that, and that's kind of the good that comes with the bad is that when there are trends that are misunderstood or, or seen in the wrong way, there's people that step in and hopefully either guide people back to where they need to be on that topic or they start you know, providing other information on those topics. I think I started doing like the Minuteman style posts, the educational ones that are like 10 slides, PowerPoint style, pretty sure in August of 2021. I think it's when we started, I started posting the first ones. Um, but at that point, people were also already doing different educational style posts, which I, I like the change, the, the educational style posts. Um, it, it kind of allows everybody to get creative um, and, you know, hit on a lot of different topics. Yeah. Um, and really pack information into posts. And because the, there is so many, so many ways of doing a, a set skill. Especially like just basic infantry and you can ask an infantry marine and um you know infantrymen an 11 bravo from the army on how to do something and sometimes you're going to get the same answer and then sometimes you're going to get completely different answers mm-hmm. um, and i think that's i think that's a really good thing to have is the diversification of knowledge so long as people are willing to accept like hey there is more than one way to do things right and I think people get narrow. I think people get narrowed in on that. Is that there's they really they do. Um, I see that a lot with my posts, people commenting because it's because I you've seen like I I like 
posting a lot of doctrine stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and the reason I do that is because I believe in order for a civilian to be an effective guerrilla or militiaman, they need to understand the how and why mm-hmm. of how it actually works before they start, okay, how do I, you know, tweak it? How do I make it mine? Or what can I do different that they won't expect kind of? Because mm-hmm. the overall, the doctrine is just overall like, this is what you should want or strive for. But in the end, you know, you figure out a way to do it. And, you know, for as far as like the doctrine side goes, there's nothing that says this is what's in the doctrine, hence this is what I have to do. If you and your group of guys, you know, are reading a, a doctrine from an infantry handbook on, you know, patrolling, um, if you are informed on the topic and you're like, you know what, instead of doing it by the book this way, we're going to make this adjustment and this is our doctrine, you know, that's that's fine. You're supposed to adapt to your environment, adapt to your mission set, adapt to your resources and capabilities. Um, you know, I very much encourage people to create kind of documents in a sense, you know, doctrine for your own group. Um, not only as like a, as a, as a learning tool, but also as a reference tool later for if your squad size element of dudes that have been training for two years turns into the whole community is now involved, you know, whatever it is type thing. And you need to train a lot of different people. Now you have the doctrine on how you have decided to do things over the past years um, to reference when you bring in new people. Mm-hmm. Cause the doctrine is essentially a standard, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Hey, we're doing a squad ambush. Okay. Like this, this is the standard, but you can execute it however you want. Mm-hmm. But as long as you meet the standard, that's all we're looking for. And with that being said, you know, don't go, posting your SOPs and doctrines and everything on the internet and whatnot. Um, providing examples and making generic forms to share with other people or to inspire other people is one thing, but like, you know, don't put your specific SOPs, formats and styles and all that. Yeah, I mean... In play. Remember your OPSEC. Yeah. Um, meaning like... You know, this is how our challenge of pass is going to be. These are going to be our frequencies. These are going to be our near-far recognition type stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, because the thing, thing I was actually I'm I'm working on right now is like, okay, so um, like battle drills. You know, you have a react to a near-far ambush. Okay, so you you know to return fire. If it's a far ambush, you're going to you know flank and close the gate right you know so maneuver elements gonna flank around and assault through the the uh the, the enemy ambush so you already know that that's what they're going to do so basically if you're going to be engaging you need to basically be planning like how are we going to stop that counter ambush you know that's a good point if you start looking at if you are fighting a conventional forces, can you study their open SOPs and doctrine? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, I've always, that's always been in the back of my head, but I've never said it out loud like that. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean like, and the simple answer is like, well, th- set up your ambush, right? You know, that's why you have your, your assault force and your security and your support, right? 
mm-hmm. and you have your flanks super, like you can't you stop that like well yes but you gotta that's why you have that is what I'm trying to get at it's like and that re- also reinforces of like oh that's why we do it this way like yes so with that being said what are some major areas of consideration for uh, small units to focus on in in your opinion um, that could be American civilians it could be you know foreign fighters it, it could be anything just the general small unit force that's fighting a larger or a conventional force what to focus on in their yeah, training like, uh, not necessarily um, I guess yeah I guess there's two aspects to this I guess I guess it's your training and then I guess it's also like your organizational setup or your operational planning or whatever that may be. Uh, let's let's start with like the operation side, like just general operational considerations for the small unit. Um Okay. So I talked to uh the guys at Ribier Tactical about this a little bit. Um as a leader understanding your displacement criteria mm-hmm. I would say okay. uh, can you expand on that for those that don't understand so, that yeah so your displacement criteria is basically your conditions that you must meet that allow you to displace um, so it can be anything from like hey once you once you eliminate four enemy and two trucks, um, or once you identify uh, a piece of equipment or HVT, you're, you're good to go. Um, being a smaller force, going against you know a bigger conventional force potentially, that's what's going to help you to um, succeed. So, if you only have, um, let's say, eight guys. And you're going against a platoon for some reason. <laughs> I mean, you said for some big. reason. Yeah, you, you said bigger, so. But that's true. Yeah, I mean that's that's a real that's I mean that's fairly realistic in the grand scheme of so, things. So okay, if you got your eight guys, all right, you're going to plan it out. We're going to engage when they're in this spot, right? And we're going to engage this area of the formation. Everyone is going to op- Everyone's going to mad minute. And then we're going to just get out of there. Mm-hmm. That could be your displacement criteria, you know? So now it's essentially it's like you just mag dumped on a platoon and, you know, every, like eight guys. So that's 30 times eight. I bet it uh, 240. No. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a second. Go ahead. You're, you're, yeah. you're in the right direction. Yeah. So 200. Yeah. 240. Yeah, 240. Wow. (laughs) So you just shot 240 rounds at pretty much a squad. Like, if we're like one part of the team, so pretty much a squad. Mm -hmm. Maybe you hit all of them, maybe not, but you just did all that and left. They are going to be so confused, so overwhelmed. And by the time they realize what happened, they're going to have to go treat their guys that you wounded or killed. And then guys will be running around. And then before, once they get all that figured out, you're already gone. Uh-huh. You know, and like you do that, like they're not going to want, like they're not going to want to fight against that. 
And I think that's one thing that a lot of civilians forget about, and even sometimes the veteran community, is that every ambush is not a total destruction, you know, objective. Right. Uh, most most of your ambushes are going to be centered around just being a pest uh, and, and really wearing down those enemy forces. Because like you said, if your eight guys are engaging, you know, that first squad of that platoon that happens to be in the front of a convoy or a patrol or whatever, or anything like that, well, now that squad is significantly damaged and they may or may not be able to replenish that squad immediately. And now you've taken little to no casualties. Mm-hmm. Now you come back a couple of days later and you do the same thing and you do the same thing. Now they really start to take a hit. Now the, the playing field starts to level. Yep. It's not a, it's not a win today, go home tomorrow type thing. As much as people may want to think that it is, um, the reality of that kind of stuff is it's long and drawn out and it sucks. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, a big part of that is too, is if you take two casualties to conduct that ambush, because, you know, let's say that second squad was hot, was hot on their feet, started getting into an L shaped real fast. You took two casualties on your far right side. Now you're down to six. Was the ambush worth it in the method that you conducted it? Um, did yeah, you, I mean, what was the risk versus reward for that? Yeah, it's like two guys at eight. That's twenty five percent. So, um, but yeah. So back to small unit capabilities. So yeah, definitely, definitely on um, that one. What would you say about? This is gonna get. This is this is gonna be the popular part because this is this is what's hot on the internet. Is you know what about weapons specifically? What kind of considerations capabilities should small units focus on? Oh man, I mean, my opinion on it is that having good riflemen is just critical. Yeah. Um... But you're talking about like specific equipment. Uh, we could we could talk about specific equipment or specific weapon platforms, um, or I guess I should say weapon systems um, that I people would, could I look would into. Say you need you're going to need something that is common in your area. Um, so I don't have one right now, but I'm a believer having AK and an AR. I've noticed a lot of people have started to, a lot of the AR guys have started taking to AKs. Yeah, I, I'm not like a super simp for them, for better lack of better words. But like, mm-hmm. I I know that like, if potentially I I might need one because, you know, China gets froggy, you know, and they come. It's like, well, looks like I'm gonna need the AK because they carry. I think they carry 760 by 39. Uh, they do. They I can't remember. They started to move towards. It's not AK a, though. I think it's like a Type 99 or something. They call it. Yeah, or, they. It's weird because the Chinese military is so big. Their their gear and their weapons aren't necessarily perfectly standardized. Yeah. Because their their force is so big that they can't do that in a in a reasonable time frame. Every time they make an update or they transition to something. But I would, but yeah, the point though is I would try to like get something that's common. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have ARs, so that's what I have. But my plan is to eventually have AK because it's still it's a pretty common weapon. Mm-hmm. 
even yeah even in america it's a it's a common yeah. weapon um the ammo i would say too um so my like my ars are uh five five six um i specifically make sure everything i buy is actually chambered in five five six and not two two three if i yeah if i ever buy two two three it is 100 percent specifically designated for like short range training ammo just because it was cheaper at the time yeah and anything i consider operational is always five five six yeah and it's i don't it's not just it's not because like well five five six or two two three is better it's because i can fire two two three and five five six chambering mm-hmm. so versus if i got a two two three chambering i can't fire five five six yeah you mess up your barrel over time yeah so having that five five six chambering allows me essentially two different types of rounds what is your opinion on the automatic rifleman and you know the, the minuteman or the civilian <laughs> force or anything like that that's that seems to be a little controversial right now i am a big proponent of ir and you RPK know, styles I, go ahead i talked to blake flannery blake uh flannery about that mm-hmm. i don't know if it was me that got it going I just know that I, I get a lot of comments and tags and stuff about it because of a few posts I have made about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, um, but I'm a believer in it. Um, now, the thing is, like, I'm not telling people to like you like just use a an AR or a semi-auto for your automatic rifleman. No, that's not yeah. what. I'm what I'm saying is until we can get machine guns I believe having somebody with a weapon system that can handle high amounts of ammunition high amounts of round fire to be someone that designates as your suppressor as suppressing fire Mm -hmm. with the team and I think it's important that we realize the limits and the capabilities of those IR RPK style uh, rifles, those LSWs, because um, a lot of people like are like, oh, I, if we get an RPK and have an automatic rifleman, we've got a machine gun. Well, no, that that is not at all true, um, not in the slightest. Yeah, I, I think I think for me, I started considering the automatic rifleman role more when Brent O three thirty one started talking about the RPK style clones that they had for One Shepherd. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I wasn't a fan of that RPK. I don't like that one specifically, but the thought of an automatic rifleman for me came from that series of posts. Yeah. Um. So it's it is it's a hot topic um, because. I know when I made the post, people were like, oh, binary triggers or FRT triggers, stuff like that. And I was like, no. In my opinion, those are stupid. Um, a good example was um, executive outcomes or admin results. At, yeah, admin. Uh, administrative results. Administrative results. That's his name. The talking balaclava. The talking balaclava. <laughs> So, um, he had a video that he, uh, had a M27, he had a HK, 
uh, HK MR556, mm-hmm. and he has an FRT trigger in there. And a great, if someone that's actually fired a machine gun trained wise and knows how to actually control it, you can hear how he's struggling to actually control that weapon. Mm-hmm. You can hear it. Um, you know, yeah, he's shooting really fast. He dumps a lot of ammo really quickly, but if you actually pay attention and watch, you can actually see and hear where there's a pause because he like messed up his trigger, his trigger squeeze. And that's important because you can't just throw somebody on there. Like here, you're the automatic rifleman now and like expect them to perform the way you would want them to, because they're just going to be mag dumping. They don't understand rates of fire. They don't understand conservation of fires. They don't understand, you know, what actually goes in to actually like machine gunnery in a sense. And I think that's, sorry, like, like there is definitely an art to being machine gunning. hundred percent. And I, I think that's definitely why it's important to highlight the limits and the capabilities of, of that role of, of that weapon platform. But I also think it serves as, as long as you're knowledgeable or someone that is knowledgeable, that's teaching it. Um, I think it's important to get that training now, even on, you know, that LSW style weapon, because it, it can carry over to when machine guns are implemented at a later point in time. I would rather take somebody that's been running, you know, a 20 inch, um, AR with a force reset trigger on a bipod that's been training on that and has been studying, you know, O three thirty one books and or all that kind of stuff. And then I give them a belt fed versus just, Hey, you're a big, strong kid. Here's the two forty we stole off this Humvee. Yeah, and obviously, like, if you're training to control that weapon, like with the FRT, absolutely. I'm like, I, I still think it's stupid, but obviously, if you're training, then obviously you can definitely be effective. Um, I talked to Reaper about this, was like, how long, how long does it take to shoot, to train somebody to know how to shoot, like, effectively? Um, like if you grab somebody brand new, never shot a gun before, mm-hmm. how long would it take you to train them to be able to fire a target like 300 to 500 meters away with combat effective, uh, accuracy? It would, it would take quite some time because there's so much that goes into it outside of the range. Right. And we're talking about normal people. So like probably only on weekends right Mm -hmm. maybe i don't know uh in a perfect world maybe every weekend maybe it's every other weekend i don't know Mm -hmm. like again that's that's another factor it's like okay are they actually dry firing at home are they um studying you know wind holds and you know whole value half value stuff like that are they under are they learning you know let's say they're using acog are they understanding how to use that ACOG and, you know, stuff like that? So, like, how long will it take to get them to be able to have combat accuracy on that target? Okay, now, how long is it going to take for you to take that guy that just uh, learned uh, how to shoot to teach him how to shoot a machine gun or a control machine gun? Mm-hmm. And I think another th- a big thing with that is you talk about training um, in the long-term scale of actually training someone to a specific standard is that 
even if you're a veteran and you're training civilians, you may not have all of the knowledge to bring someone to a capability that you want them to be at. Yeah. Like, for example, I, I am not an infantryman by traits. I worked with the infantry a lot prior to doing embassy security. And then now I study a lot of, you know, conventional and small unit tactic books, but I am not an experienced, you know, line company guy. So there's only so much I can teach to somebody that is what I would consider credible information. Um, and that goes for anything. If you're not, if you don't have a background in Intel, you can only teach so much about Intel before you're kind of just talking out of your ass or you're just repeating, you know, book gibberish. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, th I think that kind of just goes into being, you know, kind of being humble in the training aspect of things. Yeah. Um, I forgot I was going to go with that again. I'm sorry. You're good. Uh, let's see. So we talked about kind of some weapon systems. We talked about um, ambushes a little bit. What about, uh, we kind of hit on this earlier, but I kind of want to dive into a little bit more. Um, establishing logistics for the small units or the guerrilla style force. And I don't necessarily mean logistics like your own personal logistics like your stockpiles i mean like revolving logistics or like support elements in a sense okay if that um, kind of makes sense so you mean like dedicated support personnel dedicated support personnel or establishing community members that are friendly with your cause um if it's not a whole if it's not a whole thing where it's like this region is all on my side like if your region is split or your region is, you know, dominated by an outside force that's larger than yours, whatever that may be, um, kind of establishing some logistics to keep your small unit operations moving. Yeah. Um, I saw you did a like a post about it, too, and I did one. Um, it was like a civilian version of the headquarters platoon. Mm -hmm. So in that I had a I had two two medics it was two medics two uh logistics um a combo guy and two um maintenance guys so that was essentially eight um on the post i said like one to two per but something uh something happened to your audio i can hear you but it's really blurry can you hear me now uh, i can it's just it's just it sounds muffled Ooh, that's not good it's probably my phone Technical difficulties, folks. Do you have a headset on, or are you just talking into your phone? I'm just talking my phone. Hmm. Stand by, folks. We're going to pause here for a sec. All right, sorry about that, guys. Didn't want the audio to go uh, untreated and just not be good for you guys. All right, uh, Nick, you were talking about um, your post and the, the kind of headquarter style elements that you had dedicated uh, if you want to go ahead and keep expanding on that yeah so it was a two medics two uh, logistics combo two commos and two maintenance guys mm -hmm. let's see i think on mine i had for the whole for the overall thing it wasn't necessarily a dedicated headquarters unit but just general consideration for billets i had training officer um, medics logistics officers intel officers then uh, comm officers yeah and i based that off of base 
pretty much the way um, we do our headquarters platoons here in the Army, at least for uh, mine was. So, and then the only thing I was out there was like, you know, the XO and company commander was just, just strictly like the actual uh, support in that platoon. Yeah. So you're going to have your logistics people and like their sole purpose is coordinating everything logistics. So if your team platoons, whatever they need, they report it up, they get them, they put, you know, they resource them, get them, bring them back to you and distribute um, your medics. So you're going to have your platoon medics and then you're going to have your headquarters medics. And basically what they're going to serve is when you got your casualties, you hand them off to your headquarters personnel so that way your platoon medic can go back to your platoon and get in the fight and be ready for future casualties. Um, your combo guy, um, pretty self-explanatory. They're in charge of keeping the communications equipment up and running for the headquarters, but as well for the platoon. So if um, frequencies change, they make sure like everybody's on the right freak. Um, if you're running, you know, uh, some kind of encrypted type of radios, making sure that everyone has the right fill for that. Um, um, they could also be potentially monitoring radios, like say you're working with another force or a bigger force, um, or monitoring to maybe even, um, enemy forces. Um, that'd be more electronic warfare, but, um, maybe if they had the skill and capabilities to do it, they could do that as well. And then you have your maintenance guys, which are, they're in charge of keeping vehicles running, fixing them, your generators, and then the big one would be recovering. So, um, if you're using up vehicles in operations, truck gets hit, it's no longer good. Everyone grabs their gears, uh, bump plans, spread loads to other vehicles. They come, get that vehicle out of there and back to wherever. So, if it's just the Gorilla Force, it's probably, um, maybe it might stay there or maybe, you know, they're going to dump it somewhere else so they, you know, their enemy can't see it and like see that uh get a bda off of that and you know as this is like for the civilian force the minuteman style force if you're not large-scale community or regional like let's just say you're a let's say you're a squad sized element you know you got three fire teams of four and then a squad leader um the good old bro vet you know you can split up different tasks or responsibilities that rotate on a normal basis to your fire teams like let's say for fire team one, their responsibility is um, comms, intel, um, things like that, that nature. Technology like the drones and whatnot your group may have, they, they focus on those types of things. And then your second fire team is heavy on assisting in operational planning and security plans and all that kind of stuff. And then your third fire team focuses on logistics and maintenance because they have you know, two guys in that fire team that happened to be welders and the other guy was a factory manager, you know, you kind of put people into positions that they are knowledgeable in. And then you create a sense of self-sustainment even amongst that small force. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing too, is like, you're not, you can't just have just a bunch of knuckle draggers and like 
all they know is shooting and you're going to need guys that have other skills. Mm-hmm. You're going to need it. Um, and as a leader, you should identify those things earlier rather than later. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you saw in the Marines too. Like every, every platoon had somebody that had some weird little skill that they know or do. Like everybody has like a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Everybody has, um, I don't know, musician, uh, it has like somebody that knows computers really well, stuff like that, you know? So like finding, like finding people with skills like that is going to be crucial and then bringing them in and they're like, okay, your job for us uh, outside of fighting is this. And then when we go out, you know, you're in this team and this is what you do. But when we're back here, this is what you do. And, you know, as your group grows, as, you know, something big happens nationally and the community organizes in a sense and balkanizes or the Chinese invade and your community creates a plan, whatever it is, um, as you start to get bigger, you can start to look at that more big picture like Nick was talking about with like different large unit roles. Like this is the this is the maintenance guys this is the calm guys it doesn't have to be like individual people in all these fire teams like it can be a dedicated element yeah and um a and great something like a great example honestly is looking at the taliban and insurgents in iraq mm-hmm. like they had all that if you want to look at modern stuff look at them they had uh the id the ieds uh chaining right so you had the actual bomb maker. Well, then you had somebody that would plan where the bomb was going to go. And then you have like two to three, four guys that would actually take turns digging the thing to put it in there. You know, like, so there was like so many people working that just IEDs. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. that's, and that's kind of like the whole roundabout of this episode is there's so much to learn from conventional forces that you can apply to your small units. Um, the Taliban being a perfect example. They had a, 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 a planning system. They had positions. They had, you know, billet breakdowns. Yeah, they're a bunch of terrorists in pajamas, but... They were a lot smarter than people realize. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty smart. I mean, their entire life is war. That's what people don't realize is that entire area of the world, those people literally know nothing but war. Because there's always a war. Yeah, and I talked to Redbeard again about that. It was um, from at least when I was briefed, uh, it was essentially they ran their they ran their terrorist organization like a business. So the business side, they would be doing everything logistics wise. So you know, moving money, getting money, buying whatever supplies and bombing material and guns whatever propaganda and flights whatever they handle all that the other side that was like the fighters and stuff that we dealt with Mm -hmm. you know like even then it was still organized of like who was doing what to keep it going isis was very well established in that in in like 2014 2015 2016 before they kind of got scattered was they established really really government logistics and services aside from their actual like direct action element forces 
like when they would take over a city or a region, they would reestablish um, Every. everything, the courts, you know, the markets, the banks, like they did everything. And that's another point too, is like, that is in a way leadership. Um, I did this for a class once for a bunch of, uh, uh, sergeants and on the board, on the first slide of the PowerPoint, I had pictures of Hitler. I had pictures of Oprah Winfrey. I had, um, Einstein. I had Obama. I had Pol Pot. You know, I had like a mix of like well-known people and like, you know, dictators and evil people, like all that, right? And I was like, these are all leaders. Like whether you like it or not, they're leaders. Mm -hmm. um, Hitler is probably one of the better examples to use is because like, do you know how hard it actually is to try to convince an entire country that one particular group of people is the is the reason for your problems like actually convince them and to agree and side with you and then do horrible things and build it to where they either agree with it or they're afraid to say anything about it that's not easy to do if both of you look at the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, then you look at even like Karl Marx and communism in Russia. Both Karl Marx and, and Hitler, horrible people that did horrible yeah. things. Hey, we, we don't, that doesn't even need to be a discussion. No. <laughs> but, but you're right. They were not only leaders, but just they were extremely intelligent and they were dedicated and they spent so much time and resources building what they envisioned. Yeah, and it was... And that's just like, you know, I guess that goes back to recruitment. It's like, what's in it for them? Mm -hmm. And they and they knew how to rally people to the cause. Yes. Um, specifically Hitler. Like, even today, you can look back at these massive marches and speeches done by Hitler and the Nazi party, specifically after they finally gained full control. And just the emotion and the energy in these marches and these rallies were, you don't see things like that. No. Like it, it was, it was truly, and I don't mean this in a positive manner. It was truly amazing what they were able, were, were able to do. Yeah. And it's like, and somebody, I guess, listening is like, well, how does that apply to me just you know a regular dude or in the militia or whatever like that I was like well as a leader you basically have to get people to trust you with their lives to go rush a machine gun bunker mm -hmm. like that was you know essentially what I did as a leader in the Marine Corps it was like hey when I say get up and move, we're going into this building. You better get up and move. And it's not like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, okay, let's go. It's like, they're the look on their faces is like, yeah, let's 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 fucking go. They're all about it. That's what you're trying to get is like, they're all about it. Like they know it's going to be dangerous, but they're about it. And an even bigger uh, picture to that is how do you get your community or your county 
to rally behind you? How do you convince the city council members and the fire chief and the school board and like all these other people to be like, yes, this, this is an individual that we as a community want to stand by because he has good faith in principle and he actually cares about the outcome of this community. That's an even, I mean, that's, that is questionably even more important. Yes. Um, and, and that is unfortunately probably a reality that a lot of people will face. You may know you're going to be one of those individuals right now. You may not know you're going to be one of those individuals, but nothing is going to get done in whatever fantasy that you may paint in your mind. Nothing is going to get done if you do not win over the hearts and minds of the very people that you literally live next to. Yes. Um, otherwise, it is a lost cause. People always like to say, well, it's not a lost cause. If you can't even win over your exact next door neighbor or you know people in your own community that you've known all your life, then it kind of is a lost cause. Mm-hmm. I digress, though. Um I guess, I guess, kind of on that, we didn't really have this on the list, but we can kind of talk about that. You know, what are you? Obviously, you're in the military, so you, you know, you haven't done this civilian side thing that kind of I and a lot of other guys do. But in your mind, because I'm sure you've thought about it, you know, what are some things guys can do to win positive affirmation and trust? from the community members because there is a balance and i talk about it with my guys a lot is that you don't want to be known but at the same time you don't necessarily always want to be just complete strangers um i don't know if that makes much sense or if there's anything you can go off of from that you mean like connecting can uh connecting or i would even like Kind of like what Op4 was talking about the other day is like the, the propaganda aspect of that. Like, like let's say right now you have a squad size element of dudes between the county you live in and the county next to you. Okay. Um, you know, what, what do you do now to put yourself in a positive light for, you know, a year and a half from now when there's a complete breakdown and you stand, your guy, your guys are the group that stands up to help, you know, lead the community out of, uh, possible danger or, or lead them to the light, whatever that may be. How, how do you, how do you establish for people to trust you? Or can you not even do that right now? You know, just generally, what's your thoughts on that? Um, it's a hard one to think about. Okay. Um, do you remember the hurricanes back in 2017 that hit Houston? I do. I do. Okay. So, I was in Fort Polk, so I got, like, the back end of it. it like, it was just um, tropical storms when it hit us. But um, everyone remembers the Cajun Navy. Yep. So there's a good example right there. Like, I'm pretty sure, if I remember, I think the Cajun Navy was, like, they did, they were considered, like, a militia group. I can't remember. So the Cajun Navy was around prior to that, and it kind of formed after Katrina which was yeah. basically a, a whole, you know, southern side of the United States volunteer group in a sense. I yeah, do, volunteer, I do, okay. yeah. I do believe but, they have some sort of large-scale command element, but it's not necessarily organized. But I'll let you keep going on what you're Yeah, going. I can't remember, but like, yeah, I think it was just it was just a a volunteer group, but basically something like that. It was like, you know, this group 
just went on their own and offered what help they can give. And at that time, it was their boats, their boats that were designed for shallow water fishing. And they took them into the flooded neighborhoods, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. <clears throat> um, I talked to uh, Hidden Wanderer about that, actually. Hidden Wanderer, I think, or um, Confrigious Origins. I talked to one of them about it, but it was like, they asked me like, what do we, what did I think we needed to do to get us like more out there and proceed differently? And it was like, I, and I told him, I think we need somebody on the political side, like highlighting what we do for the good. And the problem with that is, is that the politics are so broken at this point as to where you can't, you can't go to that game and not play the game well it's not about the game i'm talking about i'm talking it's just about getting the attention are you you talking about like a an individual to go to the politicians or an individual becoming the politicians maybe a politician that can be shed light on someone that like because there's a lot of like outspoken second amendment supporting politicians old thomas massey baby so and like there's even I can't remember I think I think it's the one I'm talking about where he even said like when we say uh, stack up like we mean stack up. Oh, I remember what you're talking about. I can't remember who it was, but I remember what you're talking about. Yeah, he said that in the chambers. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. So, so like, you're, so you're talking about a, an individual within politics at some level that's like these guys aren't bad people. Like showing the good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because I know what you're talking about. They do that all the time with groups. They always do that. And it's like, we don't even need, we don't need all of Congress and the Senate. Sorry, we don't need that. Yeah. We need, what we need is being highlighted what we, what good we do. Mm-hmm. That's what we need. Because and, we already know not everyone's going to be for us. We already know that. Yeah. And we're not worried about the ones that will never be for us. It's the ones on the fence that aren't sure. And then they see more good being done than what they're being told of what we do. And, you know, thinking back to the smaller scale picture, you're talking about volunteering for, like, the floods and whatnot. Like, natural disaster relief type things is really big for your local crews. I'm not saying you should travel necessarily six or seven hours away to natural disasters to an area that you're not even familiar with. Um, But, like, if, you know, two or three counties away from you gets flooded, and you're, like, going and helping them and establishing that type of repertoire, um, and reputation will, will benefit you a lot in the long run. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you shouldn't do it just to make yourself know, but out of the kindness of your heart as well, because that is what you're supposed to do as good community members. Yeah. Now, the downside to that is that normally, um, depending on the scale of, of the situation, government steps in and starts kicking you out. I believe the Appalachian Rangers, if you're familiar with their page, had that problem uh, in the floods down in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Because they, they operate out of like the north side of Tennessee, south side of Kentucky, and they went to those floods and originally were helping and whatnot, but eventually there's so much government resources that show up, they want everybody else to leave. Yeah. And that's a reality for a lot of natural disaster type stuff is eventually they're just like, get out of my way. Yes. Um, and that's just a reality you kind of got to face. And, if, I would, if, that's, and I would say that's okay because... That's what they're there for. That's what they're supposed to be there for. Yeah, yeah, they're supposed to be there for. But people are going to see, like, like, 
well, these people here were helping me for you, so why did it take you so long to get to me? I think the Appalachian Rangers did talk about that. They were like, you know, we were on ground, you know, with food and helping hands before all these state resources started showing up. Yeah, and that's and that's something like, I guess, more on the propaganda side, like, um, like, look, we responded this way faster and we're not government organized where you where people like you who came together and organized faster than the government can now with all that being said whether it's natural disasters riots whatever it may be you have to remember your own limits and capabilities once again because understanding your limits and capabilities is massive Mm -hmm. if it's like we said the county over from you you probably have a general idea of that area study and you know all of that that goes into that. But if it's like, oh, this is on the other side of the state four hours away, we're going to go and try and help. Well, do you have any contacts down there? Do you have an area study of that area? Do you have logistics to support you once you get there? So there are limits and capabilities to you as a civilian force that you need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think that's a good way to get into it. Another, another big thing with that is going to different types of events and being open. You, I mean, a lot of people are so scared of the idea of feds and infiltrators and all that kind of stuff that they just refuse to talk about anything, any, any portion of the time. There's a time and place, but if a company is holding an open range day and you and two of their buddies as representatives from the group go and you, you just meet other guys that may be near your area and you just you know kind of spitball ideas and, and just talk about some general topics that's not a bad thing you're not doing anything wrong no um you should be cognizant of all of, of everything that you say and be cognizant of of what's going on but you can't be you can't be afraid to put yourself out there yeah and i know it can be hard because i on i just had this experience with my own, my own parents um you know they live in california and i live literally on the completely other side of the state the country mm-hmm. and i was like hey when i retire i'm not moving back to california i'm your only son when my grandmother is gonna die soon you know she's old mm-hmm. your mother my taught my dad your mom just recently passed away what are you staying there for who's gonna take care of you you know and it's like Basically, I'm like trying to lead them to like, hey, what is your plan for when you get older to take care of yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, and like that's asking them like, hey, come home to me where I'm going to be living. You know, and you're a- asking them to like drop everything and start a new life. You know, like, and I know it's kind of like it's different, but it's like it's in a sense it's the same because it's like, hey, join our group. This is what we're about. You know, it was like, hey, I'm trying to get my parents to, like, do something for the better of them so I can take care of them. Mm. You know, it's like, it, it, like, trying to bring people in, I guess, like, it, it's, it, can, it can be challenging. Yeah. Um, and some people aren't, you know, as social as others. I'm an extremely social individual, so I can talk to, you know, anyone about really anything. But then there are other people in my group that aren't as good at recruiting because they don't. Not that they aren't necessarily social, but they don't know how to approach things in a more, you know, 
professional yet open manner. So uh, there are going to be individuals that are better at um, recruiting and propaganda than you are. I mean, you should definitely lean on those individuals. Um, mm-hmm. But it was also it's all a giant. It's all a big learning experience as far as as far as that goes. Yeah. Um, kind of as we start to wrap this up, um, when we're still on the topic of civilians, you know, what are now that we've talked about a bunch of different ways that civilians could be utilized in an organized manner, both conflict and non-conflict related, what are some big areas of focus we should focus on training? Um, outside of like shooting, outside, outside of outside of shooting and stuff like that, like the cool guy stuff. Um, planning, man. Um, planning really, is huge. I'm really big on planning. Like, planning is so much a skill, just like anything else is. Everybody uh, in your group should know how to write a smiak. Not even that. It's just like, like just thinking about what you're trying to do and what is your plan to do it. You know, it doesn't have to be like a full five paragraph order, but like, um, like I was saying this on a live one, it's just like, okay, if you're going to go to Costco mm-hmm. and you know, Costco is 15 minutes away from your house, you already know your route. You're going to get there, right? Mm-hmm. You already know you're, where you're probably going to park because it's this time of day on this day of the week. You already know what you're going to go there for. So you already know what aisles you're going to come in and you already know what to expect of how long you're waiting in line. Right now, if there's, I don't know, if I'm taking the freeway to get there and there's a giant traffic jam, do I know alternate routes to get around to that Costco so I can get there faster and not wasting time in traffic? You know, when I get to that Costco, do I, do I know where the exits are in case something happens? You know, do I pay attention to where I'm at at the time in the store? So that way it's like, if something happens, I know I'm this far away from this exit or I'm this far away from that exit. Like little, like little practicing planning like that. I think you just described a five paragraph order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to like people, I say like, not exactly because I don't want people to like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the word i guess paranoid or intim- intimidated yeah like, intimidated yeah it's probably a good point is i don't want people getting i don't like i don't want people getting intimidated by the fire paragraph order yeah and like i say i say it that way i did because it actually it gets people to realize like oh yeah i do do that already i do do that already you know like mm-hmm. oh okay and it's like you just highlight things that they already do and they don't realize like yeah you plan out methodically everything you're going to do you know, that's your mission. And then they, they just apply it to, you know, their an act, an actual operational mission, I guess. What, um, I guess, what type of skills do you think are of high importance that guys should either uh, do their own research on or, or find somebody to teach them on? Ooh, man. I don't know because I don't I don't know what um, civilians are lacking. Um, I, I think comms is a big one. Comms, comms. 
I've been talking. I've been. I've. I've talked a bunch with comms and logistics recently, um, and the amount of comms information he's been sharing with me, like, I would have never been able to find out the length of information in which he shared with me if somebody did not sit me down and and show me all of the software, all of the you know knowledge, the equipment, the resources, like. Comms is a really big one that I think civilians overlook because we're so stuck in Baofeng mode. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if you look at like HF, if you look at encrypted comms, and you start looking at digital, like you start looking at all these elements that go into comms, and it's it's a really complex field. Um, and you know, comms makes an operation. Yes. But if you're rocking thirty dollar Baofangs for an entire, you know, war, that, that war may be very short for you. Yeah, uh, I need to get rid of my Baofangs. We're all guilty of it. Everybody goes to the Baofang stage. Yeah, it, it, it's it's one of those things where it's like the Baofang is the S and P Sport AR fifteen. Mm. Like every everybody everybody has that stage. It's it's that learning curve. Yeah. Unless, you know, the FBI gives you a Daniel Defense rifle. <laughs> um, I think another big one for people to, that, that people, that civilians should hit on more is like um, area studies and then also like true reconnaissance. Um, I feel like that's a very under talked about topic. Um, you know, can you put on civilian attire? and go to town and collect all of the information without becoming detected to eventually plan the operation that you want to conduct. Mm, so un- you, unconventional reconnaissance. Unconventional reconnaissance. Or if you were thinking more big picture, more conventional, did you do the area study of your area to implement you know, a large organized force, even if it's like, you know, a volunteer group, like a, just an absolute crap ton of Minutemen with little training do you have an area study in mind of how to um you know basically write and implement different uh defensive area plans and things like that um, yeah um reconnaissance is a whole another world too like because mm-hmm. you got you got lar cap scout reconnaissance which what i do then you got marine recon then you got special recon in the uh soft community and each of those you know it's its own unique purpose because mm-hmm. like everyone when everyone thinks reconnaissance that's what they think of right away is like marine recon and like special sr you know sr reconnaissance and like you know seals and sf and stuff like that they don't think about like the lar marine lar and cav scouts mm-hmm. of like reconnaissance is like yeah we it's not the sexiest. It's not as sexy as like them, you know, running around with panos and Mark 18s and stuff and beards. But like, what we do is, you know, we fight for information, and that is just as important as the stuff they are doing. Mm-hmm. So I mean, and there's so many different levels. Oh yeah. In that. Yes. You know, recon. Itself. Yeah. You got like drone operators, you know, and they're doing their area reconnaissance, and you got Apache pilots doing <laughs> reconnaissance, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just like there's so many like 
things, types of reconnaissance. It's like, it's not just, you know, walking around in the woods with a backpack on and yeah, it's so much more. And, you know, being able to record and report that information is huge, even in like a, even in a standardized fashion, you know, how are you presenting that information to the rest of your forces? Um, after, after you've conducted said recon, let's say you and two buddies got in a Subaru and did XYZ routes on this exact location to figure out its specific features. Okay, how are you collecting that information? Did you take pictures? What did you take pictures of? Did you just take pictures of a wall? Or did you take pictures because the wall has a defensive position or a tower on it or something like that, you know? There has to be a lot of why behind all of those types of things. Yeah, and I mean, like, like you just mentioned route reconnaissance, and it's like that's a whole different thing too, right there. Because, mm-hmm. you know, for me, like what I do, it's going a route recon is not just driving and like, can we drive on this thing and good? Like, no, it's hey, there's an obstacle here. Crap, there's probably somebody watching it, and obviously, you know, we're getting lit up and we're fighting. And then after we, you know, eliminate the enemy, all right, now we need to get engineers out here to clear this obstacle. Mm-hmm. And once that's done, guess what? Continue the mission. Like, and then even oh. more difficultly, difficultly is PIR, personal, uh, personal identification, uh, identification reconnaissance, tracking a single individual or a single group of individuals, which that's an even deeper field with a whole lot more tasks within it. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. I think the army calls it something different, and I may be even using the wrong acronym yeah, for it. PIR means something different to me. So, because PIR for us is a priority priority information requirements. So, maybe I'm using the wrong acronym. I'm trying to remember, we talked about it a lot with like embassy security because when we would like record specific individuals that seem to be like observing the embassy and whatnot. Yeah. And we pass on that information to either like, you know, our Intel resources or like other local Intel resources that we work with. I'm trying to remember the acronym for that. It was something like that. And in general terms, you know, tracking a specific individual or, or, or collecting information on a specific individual for whatever purpose at hand it may be. Hmm. Um, let's say, I guess a, a good way to, to for this to be implemented or be applicable, I should say, is let's say a left-wing militia group happens to take over your area because you live in a suburban uh, style town outside of a large city. Um, and, and where you happen to live, it just so happens to be extremely, um, let's say, just, just say socialist. So a socialist armed wing has arose in your area and local forces, for whatever reason, have not been able to quell that threat. Well, you as a much smaller force will say, um, can you identify key leadership positions in that? Because you're not necessarily fighting a conventional force in all matching camis. You know, you're, you're, it's a completely different beast. Um, it just goes for like, you know, different government officials. If you look at the Taliban, like the Taliban always targeted specific government officials in the Afghan government and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that that's a, just another idea or capability as far as just like the reconnaissance or intel portion goes. Yep. I, think I'm, I think I'm just kind of rambling at this point on that topic. 
No. I mean, you just brought up, like, a memory when you said that. I was like, yeah. So, um, but, there, yeah, we're, we're going down a rabbit hole because, like, there's so much into reconnaissance that, mm-hmm. you know, there, people don't realize, you know, like, it's not just, you know, beards and hiking boots and backpacks. It is cool to have beards and hiking boots and backpacks, though. Yeah. But, I mean, like, yeah, it's just... I wish I still had my beard. When I got out of the Marine Corps and I grew my beard, I was in love. And then I went to the fire academy and I have shaved every day since. <laughs> I, I never really got to fully embrace the bro vet beard. Well, I think this is kind of a, a, a good point for us to kind of start wrapping up. Everything else, I think, kind of leads down rabbit holes, which we don't want to overwhelm information yeah. in a sense. Um, is there any other key areas that you kind of wanted to hit on as far as, like, conventional takeaways um, for civilians to either study or look into or anything like that? Um, probably command not command uh leadership positions yes oh yeah that was something i think on our notes we never really hit on so um probably the misconception of a leader in like a combat role um because everyone always i guess the movies portray or even like video games portray like the leaders like you know running charging follow me this and that i was like no, not necessarily. Um, that's why there's like the fighter leader concept, but you know it's not what you think. You know, like as a a leader in a combat role is more of a mentor and uh, somebody that's uh, what's the word? Uh, something to inspire you and. Um, also a subject matter expert subject matter expert is, is, a, is a big thing because like you're if you're a squad leader per se you know your your fire teams and your fire team leaders are your responsibility it's your job to mentor them and you know continue to develop them across you know multiple uh, fronts of knowledge and you know they look to you as that resource of knowledge and experience yeah because you can have all the knowledge, but if you're not able to inspire them and mentor them to do it, that knowledge is going to be pretty useless. Um, a good example would be like old school breaching. You know, get private Schmuckatelli, hey man, grab your ISO mat, and you're going to jump on the sea wire and we're going to jump, like, run on your back and get over there, you know? <laughs> I've never personally experienced that, but I have. when I heard when I heard about that, I was like, "That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard." It's an actual thing, but yeah. Oh, I oh, I know it's an actual thing. But it works. But like, it does work. <laughs> but like, do you, like getting that guy to like trust you to do that is like, yeah, man, we're we're serious. This is how we do it. But like, you're gonna be the guy. You know, <laughs> like, don't worry, we're gonna get you. We're coming. We're not leaving you. We'll come back. Just, you know, just stay there for a minute. And yeah, but it's like, yeah, it's. But that's what I mean. It's like you gotta, you gotta get that trust. 
if that's the only way to get it done, you know, and yeah, it's going to suck, but they got to trust you. I, I talked about this big one day after a PT session with my guys is that as a leader, regardless of whatever element you find yourself in, whether you're a company size element, your squad size element, whatever it is, as the leader, those under you, that's, that is your responsibility. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a positive way. Like they are yours to care for, to look after, to train, to lead. Like it is, it is a privilege to be in a leadership position. It is, you know, it's, it's something that should be earned. Um, and it's something that should be, you know, in a non cheesy way, kind of like glorified. It's like, yes, we look up to that guy. That guy is my leader. Yeah. But I think too, is also being a good subordinate. Absolutely. That doesn't get talked about it much. I think, um, it's just I, like the old saying goes, you have to learn to follow before you can lead. Yes. But also too, is, um, so I would tell my guys like, I'll be nice to have around. Like you guys don't need me. Mm-hmm. I'm just nice to have around. You know, I handle your paperwork. I get the stuff you need, you know, like you tell me your problems, I go to the platoon store and get it and all this kind of stuff. Like I'm nice to have. Because at the end of the day, it's you guys that are doing all the work. Mm. I'm ni- it's nice to have me around so that way you have one last thing to worry about while you're doing whatever task you got at hand. Like and, I'm not needed because really like the platoon sergeant can just grab a whole bunch of privates and like let's go and until it's done. But, you know, just full force of a bunch of privates running around. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, you never, especially on the civilian side, you never know when that key leadership position, you know, that that guy that brought the group together may not be there anymore. He may need to move because it's better for his family and his life. Um, I could die in a structure fire my next shift, and you know, what do, are my guys able to continue to do all the things I've been trying to push them to do, you know? Schmuckatelli could help and move his family three states away and now he's no longer in that position to lead that group or you know maybe uh, you have to step away because family priorities yeah you're still in the area but you can't put the time and effort into your group anymore so um, yeah it's like you said it's, it's nice to have those guys around but you should want to develop your guys to not need you yeah um I've done that maybe, let me see, one time, like one really good team. And like, let me see, I was, we are doing like a platoon team leader competition. And I had to go to uh, the aid station that day of the actual competition. My mm-hmm. automatic rifleman took over the team. He's just a lance corporal. And keep in mind, this guy was like, not the highest thought of Lance Corporal in the platoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had some issues before, but, um, you know, he he turned around and changed and all that, but, you know, people still kind of like, you know, that's him, whatever, blah, blah, blah. This guy ends up, like, putting two corporals, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like, tying with them, essentially. Like, two corporals who are supposed to be, like, good team leaders mm-hmm. and like 
makes them like almost lose, almost beats them. You know, and it's like that's awesome. Like you did all that without me there. You know. So. Well, I think we're probably at a uh, pretty good stopping point. We're coming up on two hours here. <laughs> yeah. This was a. Uh, this was definitely good. I was glad. I'm glad to have gotten another, um, you know, military guy in here to kind of talk about some conventional uh, stuff, uh, specifically in this matter. Because I, I was trying. I can't remember who I was trying to talk to about this last. I think it was Comms and Logistics. Uh, this podcast, I'm trying to make it, in a sense, like a library of information, um, and I'm trying to bring in so many different like subjects and so many different guests to cover different things that I want people to be able to reference this as information. Like I want to learn about, I'm just an average Joe Schmo civilian. Here's an episode on concealed carry. You know, I am that Minuteman civilian. Here's a episode on conventional forces and takeaways. You know, I want to know comps. Here's an episode like that. So I'm trying to make this a library of information for people to be able to reference. So I was definitely glad to get you on here and kind of talk more big picture military topics with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, normally I do some shout outs. So is there any shout outs you like to give? <laughs> uh, no, not that I could think of. Oh, um, damn. He said, screw the homies guys. Yeah. Uh, check out the map daddy wandering Hoosier. <laughs> I love it. Oh, but I was the first one to make that comment about map daddy, uh, like a week or two ago. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make it a thing. Oh, I'm going to push it. I'm going to push it so hard. Yeah. Like it's, I'm going to make it a thing. He is the map daddy. He is map daddy now and he doesn't like it. That's what makes me love it even more. Keep on doing it. Uh, Shout out to map daddy. Yep. This one's for you, map daddy. Uh, anything else? No, that's it. Again, thank appreciate you having me um pretty uh i was pretty surprised to be invited because i've never been asked to like for an interview of anything so i was like oh cool hey uh, you put out uh you put out good information I, I like i like your style of like information presentation and i think that's one big thing i, I like about this whole transition of the community is seeing all the different ways guys like to present information um so, you know, keep keep doing the things that you do. Um, I know it's definitely a ton of good information and people really like your channel. So keep that stuff coming. Yeah, Brad, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, as always, guys, shout out to my local crew for doing everything you guys do. You guys go balls to the wall and, and you know, train harder than a, a lot of Marines I ever served with. So you guys are you guys rock. And then shout out to my girlfriend for being uh, not only supportive of everything I do here at ECT, but also quiet during this podcast. Uh, <laughs> big, big thank you to you. Well, Nick, appreciate you coming on, buddy. Um, I hope to you know do some collab work or and talk to you more in the future. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, message me anytime, man. For sure. All right, guys, that is the it. That is the end of episode eight of the Everyday Citizen Tactical Podcast, Conventional Forces and Civilian Takeaways. As always, train hard, train often. 
Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder yeah. Call me what you wanna but you can't call me no coward yeah. Shrink the numbers, we the people still the ones with power Fighting fire with fire, time to take back what is ours Tell me turn it down